Turn, if you would, tonight to the book of Acts. We will get started. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have tonight. I pray that you'd bless the effort to uh, preach your word. I pray that it'd be a help, that you would use it, Lord, to speak to our hearts. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that you know this, but we've been bouncing around the last few weeks, and uh, we'll be doing this for a couple of more weeks. I think I've got direction on uh, where we're going to be next on Sunday night, so I would imagine that that's not of like grave concern for you all throughout your daily lives. Like, I wonder where we'll be Sunday night. I just want you to know we're not going to be bouncing around uh, much longer, and I think that we're going to be in a study like I said, in a few weeks that will be a help, something that I think will be profitable, something that we've never done here before, and uh, I, I am looking forward to it. But tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, we'll be dealing with a familiar portion of scripture, and I'm just going to head to admit right up front that this message was really somewhat birthed out of some heresy I planned on preaching. Now, I didn't mean to plan on preaching heresy, but as I was putting my thoughts together, I thought, oh, that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and then I realized, well, there's only one problem with it. It's not biblical. And so I thought, well, let's look at this text some more and see if there's something to get from it that might actually be biblical. And uh, I'll explain more in just a moment as to what the heresy was or going to be and then how I think it corrected itself and how it applies to us. But I want to begin tonight by talking about something that I know I have mentioned in the past, and this may not be your particular issue. This may not be your particular struggle. Uh, I know that we've all got our own issues. I know that we've all got our own struggles. But something that has been true of me for a long time is that I find myself being an aggressive driver. I don't know why I'm an aggressive driver. I didn't grow up in that kind of an environment. That's not how my parents taught me to drive by any means. But I have found myself over the years to be an aggressive driver. And so I, I've mentioned this before. I've touched on this before that if the speed limit is 40 miles an hour, I want to go 40 miles an hour. I don't want to go 37 miles an hour. Just get up to speed, whoever's in front of me, and let's go. Let's drive the speed limit. If the speed limit's 75, I want to drive 75. Something else that I'm also guilty of is this, is if I'm at a stoplight and the light turns green, I expect people to go. I mean, that's kind of how we were trained to drive. It's kind of the expectation. And, and so with my somewhat aggressive spirit on the road, I used to have a, a tendency to use that factory-installed equipment called a horn. You ever use the horn in, in your driving experience? Some of us have. I mean, maybe not everyone, but I, I would use the horn from time to time. Now, I do want to say this, just maybe for self-defense. I was never one of those people that just laid on the horn. I, I was not one of those obnoxious individuals, but it would be more like a love tap type of a thing, like, Wake up, dummy. The light is green. That, that's more of the approach that I took with my horn honking usage. And, and I don't know when exactly it happened, 
and I'm not being silly whenever I say this, but the Holy Spirit began to convict me about that. And it was like the Holy Spirit was saying, come on now, you're really in that big of a hurry? You've really got to make this turn that fast or get through the intersection this quickly? And so, you know, I, I, I had to back off of my driving habits just a little bit. And, and so where maybe I used to would have crowded the bumper of the person going slow, I've tried to back off a little bit. Whenever I would honk the horn, you know, that little love tap trying to get them to get off their cell phone and to actually drive, I've, I've tried to quit that as, as, you know, much as would be reasonable. And, and the other day I found myself in a situation, keeping in mind I'm working on this and old habits can die hard sometimes, I've been working on this now for quite some time, and I was at an intersection on Somerville, there where the light is at, and, and I was behind this car, and the light turned green, it was our time to go, and we weren't going. Well, you know what my initial thought was, honk, honk, get off your cell phone, let's drive, let's move. But I didn't do anything. But so help me, I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it came from heaven. I don't know where it came from. But the sound of a long horn went off. Now, I don't really think it came from heaven, okay? I'm being facetious whenever I say that. But I'm just saying I don't know where it came from. But here is what I know. It certainly could have been perceived by the person in front of me that it came from me. Now keep in mind, I did not honk my horn. I didn't even tap on it. I did good that time. But it still could have been perceived by me that I was the one who laid on the horn. Now once the person began to go, there was no way that I could catch up with them and let them know that that wasn't me. There was no way that I could catch up to them and say, listen, I was polite, I wasn't rude, I, I wasn't the one honking at you. There was no way that I could, quote unquote, or for lack of better words, make the situation right with them. They went their direction, I went my direction. And the only thing that I could say to myself in the midst of that moment, because of how the Lord has been working with me on this and being patient and less aggressive, all I could say was this, God, you know. God, you know that I didn't honk the horn. God, you know that I wasn't impatient just then, though I could have been. And as silly as this story is, here's what I want us to think about by way of principle, is that I was able to leave that moment, that interaction with that other driver. I was able to leave that moment with a clear conscience. And I have to tell you, all things considered, that felt good. It felt so good to have a clear conscience knowing that in that moment I did right. For this reason, there have been so many occasions where I have done wrong behind the will that I could not have a clear conscience. And so with that little thought in mind, this evening I want to remind us of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what we looked at last week, last Wednesday night. I want us to remember this, that the Apostle Paul was looking forward 
to his transition into glory. If you were here Wednesday night, hopefully you remember something about the sermon. You remember something about the, the, the presentation of the message and how Paul was looking forward to leaving this life and allowing mortality to be swallowed up by life. Paul was looking forward to the day that he would trade this sinful flesh for a glorified body, for a perfect body, for a sinless body. But I want to remind us tonight, and I want us to hear this, okay? This is important, that before the Apostle Paul could enjoy the glorified body, before the Apostle Paul could enjoy a sinless body, he had to live out the days of his life that God gave him. He was not able to press the fast-forward button and hurry up and expedite the process. Paul had to live out his days just like you and I have to live out our days. As much as you and I may look forward to heaven, as much as you and I may look forward to that transition where we enter into glory and we shed this sinful mortal flesh, as exciting as that may be, every one of us have to live the days that God has given us. So as we come to Acts chapter 16, here's what we realize and here's what we understand that Paul is in the process of living out his daily life. He is in the process of doing what has to be done in his service for the Lord. And in verse number 9, we read this, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Now, I know that most of us know this, but this is what is often referred to as the Macedonian call. And as we look down in verse number 12, it says this, And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. So as Paul has moved to the area of Macedonia, he finds himself in the chief city or the primary city of the region there in Philippi. And it's in verse number 16 that in the midst of ministry, Paul comes into contact with this woman who is possessed with the spirit, it says, of divination. Notice what it says in verse number 16. It says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And so what we understand is that this lady, this damsel, she was able somehow, obviously through the aid of these spirits, this demon possession, she was able to foretell future events with enough clarity or enough precision that those who had control over her or guardianship over her were able to make money off of her ability. So in verse number 17 it says, The same, that being the damsel, the same followed Paul and us, those who traveled with Paul, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Now, though the statement of this lady is correct, obviously it was not stated with the right spirit. If it was stated with the right spirit, then Paul would not have done what was said or what is recorded in verse 18. It says, And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, 
I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. So that lets us know that if the lady's motives had been right, if the lady's attitude or spirit had been right, then Paul would not have been grieved by what she was declaring because she was declaring it, again, an accurate a presentation of what his ministry was about, that of Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. But because it was not what it was supposed to be, Paul was grieved. He turns and he says to the Spirit, obviously under the authority of, the, uh, of God in his life, under the authority of God, he commands the Spirit to come out, and it says that within the hour the Spirit came out of her. So verse number 19, it says, and when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. What have the, what have the masters or, or the guardians over her realized? Well, they've realized there's no more profit to be had from this lady. She'll no longer be able to tell the future. She'll no longer be able to, to bring us the income. And so obviously they're bothered by this because they can no longer capitalize on this. So in verse number 19... They bring Paul and Silas into the marketplace unto the rulers. And it says in verse number 20, brought them to the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Now I want us to think about this and we'll come back to it in a couple of moments. But this no doubt was a false accusation, correct? At no time was Paul exceedingly troubling their city. This was a great city. This was the greatest city in the region. I don't think that Paul and a couple of others who had only been there a couple of days really could have done that much trouble to the city. But nonetheless, this is the accusation that is leveled against him and the others. And it says in verse number 21 that in addition to exceedingly troubling the city, they said, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive neither to observe being Romans. And so the false accusations continue. So in verse 22, we're almost to the text that we'll be looking at, but in verse number 22 it says, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. So what is Paul and Silas about to experience? Well, they're about to experience a beating, right? And something they knew how to do in their day and in their culture was give a beating. They knew how to do this. They knew how to, to, to perform this in such a way that it would inflict the most pain possible on the one receiving this. And so it says in verse number 23, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer, to keep them safely. So once they've been beaten, they've been thrown into jail now. We understand this. We know this. But in verse number 24, it reads, Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So what have Paul, Paul, what have Paul and Silas been put into? Well, they've basically been put into maximum security prison. And their feet, it says, have been bound or placed in stocks. And I know that we know this, but that was that instrument or that tool that would lock people up around their ankles 
And obviously when people are locked up by their ankles, they have no mobility. All they can do is sit or lay or get in the most comfortable position they can, they can make for themselves. But here is Paul and Silas. They've just been beaten. They've been cast into prison, into the inner prison of the prison. And their feet are now in the stocks. And all they can do is lay there. Now, I want us to hear this, all right? Let, let, let's give attention to this. This is important. In that moment... What would generally be the typical response from an individual? Now, I don't know about you, and maybe I can't speak for anyone else, but I think if I had just been beaten, then thrown into jail, into the inner chambers of the jail, and my feet had been placed fast in the stocks, and I had no mobility, no chance to move about, to get comfortable or whatever, I think my natural response would be to maybe just lay there and groan for a little bit. Maybe just try to get comfortable and just relax for a little bit. But we know what Paul and Silas did, right? It says in verse number 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now, I guess I can't prove this from the Scripture per se, but this is my opinion on this, and this is my thought on this, and feel free to do with this whatever you want. But I believe that Paul and Silas were prompted by the Spirit of God in that moment to sing. Because, again, that would not be a typical, normal, natural response under these conditions. Most people don't go through this and say, wouldn't it be a great time to sing? I think somehow the Holy Spirit impressed upon them or with the level of spiritual maturity they had already acquired in their lives, they knew that it was okay and right and appropriate, but they begun to sing or they began to sing. And as a result of doing so, in verse number 26, again, something we're familiar with, it says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. So as a result of the earthquake that happened, as a result of the songs that were sung and the prayers that were prayed, when this earthquake takes place, all the prisoners are free. Verse number 27, <coughs> The keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Most of us know this, but that, that guard would have been personally responsible for the whereabouts of each of those prisoners. So seeing the situation, he assumed that the prisoners no doubt fled. He knew that it would lead to his death, so he was about to commit suicide when in verse number 28 it says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Well, what did this eventually lead to? Well, eventually it, it, it led to the salvation of the Philippian jailer, correct? And not just him, but it seems as though salvation came to the entire house, and so something wonderful and fantastic came from all of this. 
And so as I was studying this, and as I was looking at this familiar portion of Scripture, here is where my mind went, and here is where the poor thought process began to materialize and take shape. I was considering Paul and Silas praying and singing and and praising the Lord, and I gave attention to the response, the earthquake, and and the people being set free, and the salvation that came, and here was my immediate thought. Because of Paul's obedience and Silas's obedience to sing and to pray and to lift up their voices in praise, they were able to see God do something amazing. Now that was where my thoughts went originally, and again, flawed thinking. But I thought they were able to see God do something amazing because of their obedience. And so my initial thought was, let's do this. Let's preach a message, if the Lord gives leadership, on be obedient and watch God bless in amazing ways. Be obedient when it's not easy. Be obedient when it's not fun. Be obedient when, when, it's, when it's hard to do and, and watch God bless. And that would be a good sermon to preach, right? Yeah, theoretically, it'd be a good sermon to preach. It would seem fun, no doubt, to preach and encouraging. And, and nobody would leave here mad at me for sure if I just said, Hey, be obedient and enjoy watching God work. But this fouled it up. Well, what fouled it up? It was obedience that led Paul to Macedonia. It was obedience that led him to Philippi. It was obedience that led him to having this lady following him for certain days, mocking his ministry. It was obedience that eventually led to him standing before the rulers and the magistrates, having these false accusations brought against him. It was obedience that led him to getting beat. It was obedience that led him to getting cast into the prison. It was obedience that led his feet being put into the stocks. And so I couldn't really look at this text and say, well, just be obedient and watch God work in amazing ways because obedience actually led him to being lied about and beaten and thrown into prison. And that's not near as encouraging to preach as the other part of it. But it's as true as the second part. The obedience of Paul led him into circumstances that were not anything that a person would wish upon themselves. And so as I thought about this, I I know I've said this before, and we've heard this before, I'm sure, by other people. But unlike us, Paul wasn't able to skip down a few verses and read how it all worked out. As Paul is getting beat, he wasn't able to look down to say, oh, I don't know, verse number 27, and say, well, listen, we got an earthquake coming. Don't worry, Silas. Or verse number 26, if we're going to get specific about it. He wasn't able to just jump down and see, okay, this is going to lead to the salvation of the jailer and his family. 
All Paul and Silas could do when they were cast into prison was just continue living the life they were supposed to live until that transition into glory took place. Paul wouldn't have known if this was his final days, final moments, or if he would soon be set free. Again, Paul didn't have the ability to know what the future held. So what is Paul doing? He's just being obedient in that moment, whether it led to a beating and to bondage or whether it led to an earthquake and deliverance and salvation of others. He was just being obedient. Now this is one story out of the life of Paul that we have recorded for us. But you know what Paul could have honestly said before the earthquake, before the deliverance, and before the salvation? He could have honestly declared to you and I that in this moment, regardless of what is happening, I have a clear conscience before God. Are we following this? I came to Macedonia out of obedience. I came to Philippi out of obedience. I preached what I preached out of obedience. And everything that's happened, it was out of obedience. And because I have been obedient, no matter how this turns out, before God, I have a clear conscience. I'm sure most of us know this, but I'm just going to share this anyways. Did you know that in other portions of Scripture, Paul reminded other believers how he handled himself above reproach so as not to be accountable or not to be... Uh, uh, oh, what's the word? I'm... It just escaped me. So as not to be a burden to the people, so that his reputation, so that his testimony could be intact. I want us to, to remember this. I want us to focus on this, that Paul sought to live his life in such a way that no matter who he was with, no matter where he was at, no matter what he was dealing with, he could, with a clear conscience, know that he had handled himself correctly in that situation. Now, whether you want to think that I'm jumping to too many conclusions from this or not, that's up to you. But let me just kind of throw this out and, and just consider it. That the only reason Paul could really look forward to the transition into glory is if he had handled himself in such a way that he had a clear conscience before God. Because Paul would not have been excited about such a transition if he knew in his everyday behavior that he had not handled himself correctly, which would not have then lended itself to a clear conscience. Now, again, this is just one story out of the story of the life of the Apostle Paul. But he was able 
to go through all of this knowing I have been obedient each step of the way. So tonight, for just a moment, here's what I want us to consider. Here's what I want to talk about. The value of a clear conscience. It's pretty important, isn't it? The value of a clear conscience. I know that we know this. I know that we're aware of this. But I just want us to think about this for a couple of moments. It is impossible to live in disobedience to God's will for our lives and at the same time enjoy a clear conscience. Does this make sense? You cannot, I cannot live in disobedience to God's will for my life and have a clear conscience. You and I can quench the Holy Spirit, right? You and I can reach a point in our lives where we have told the Holy Spirit no so many times that we no longer feel the guilt or the remorse for what it is we're doing. But if we have not yet reached that point, you and I cannot have a clear conscience while living in disobedience. I know from personal experience. I cannot be doing wrong over here and still be able to have a clear conscience over here. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does is make us miserable because we know we're not right. I have known in my personal life when things were not what they were supposed to be. And and I could try to fake it. And I could try to put on the show. And I could try to, to make people think that everything was okay. But you know what? I still had this nagging voice in my head that reminded me, Buddy, you're not right no matter how much you want to pretend you are. It is a miserable, miserable feeling. If I had to guess, I don't have to, but if I had to, here's what I would guess, is that there are some right now in the church listening to this sermon, and you're not real comfortable right now. You know why? Because you don't have a clear conscience before God. You know that your spiritual life is not where it's supposed to be. You know your spiritual life is not in that place with with where you know it's supposed to be. Now, you want everybody to think it's okay. You want everybody to think it's all right. but, But you know it's not. It's a miserable position to be in. You know that you've been doing this. You know that you've been doing that. You know that you haven't been doing this or haven't been doing that. You know tonight whether or not your conscience is clear. Let's listen. We know whether or not our conscience is clear. And when our conscience is not clear because of disobedience, that is a miserable position to find ourselves in. 
So I'm just going to throw this out real quick before we transition to the next thought. I, I want us to think about this, that if there is something in your life that is taking place right now and it is robbing you of a clear conscience, you need to address it and you need to take care of it. The only way that the peace will be restored, the only way that the peace will be brought back into your life is whenever you confess whatever the issue is and you forsake it and you turn from it and you start living the way you know you ought to be living. There is a need for us to get right with God for so many reasons, but especially the reason or the need of being able to enjoy a clear conscience. We don't know what the next step is. We don't know what the next phase is. We can't jump ahead and read a few verses and find out what our life is going to look like. We need a clear conscience before God. And that is only found in obedience to God's will for our lives. There is such a need for a clear conscience because it makes life miserable without it. You don't sleep as well. You don't enjoy people as well. You don't enjoy the things of God as well. It's just miserable when the conscience is not clear. But just as I am sure that there are some people here tonight without a clear conscience, I'm sure there are some who do enjoy a clear conscience. Now understand, please, that that involves a lot of things if we're really going to suggest that our conscience is clear. Because that does not just involve our relationship with God, it then involves our relationship with man. And it is a glorious thing, is it not, to be able to say that as of right now, with God's help, with, with all honesty, before God, there's nothing between me and Him and nothing between me and anyone else that I know about. Isn't that a wonderful feeling? It is a wonderful feeling, and I know some of you know this, and so I'm going somewhere with this, all right? It is a wonderful feeling, isn't it, to know that right now there is no sin in your life standing between you and the Lord. That's a good feeling, isn't it? Well, it's a good feeling, isn't it, whenever you know that between you and your spouse there's no issues that need to be addressed? Well, that's a good feeling. Well, that's a blessing. That's a benefit. It's a good feeling in addition to that to know that your relationship with your children or with your parents is what it's supposed to be. Well, it's a wonderful feeling, is it not, to know that your relationship with others that God has brought into your life is what it's supposed to be. That is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And if that is where you're at in life, it's wonderful because you know all that is where it's supposed to be. But it's also wonderful for this reason, because we don't know how the next few days or the next few moments of our life is going to play out. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that if we have to transition into glory in this condition, we can do so with a clear conscience before God? 
We really need to think about this. We can try to tie these thoughts together. Here's the Apostle Paul again. He doesn't know how everything's going to play out, but he is looking forward to mortality being swallowed up in life, and he wasn't afraid of it. Why? Because he knew things were right with God. I'm just saying, for those of you who may sit here this evening and you may say, man, things are right between me and the Lord. Things are right between me and the people that God has brought into my life which they would have to be if you're going to be right with the Lord. But, but nonetheless, uh, you know, things are right and where they're supposed to be. I would just say this. That is something to work at and to maintain. So that in the moment that we have to stand before the Lord, we are ready, we are prepared, and we don't have the regrets. I don't know if this sermon has made a lick of sense or not. I, I hope that it has. But I want us to think about this as, as the sermon comes to a close. I want us to think about our lives, and I want us to be honest. Can we truly say that where we are at right now is because obedience got us there? Whether it be a, a, a mountaintop moment or whether it be a tough moment, whatever it may be, can we honestly suggest that obedience got us there? If so, then you know the joy of a clear conscience tonight. And that's something to celebrate. It's something to be thankful of. It is something to rejoice in. But if where you're at you know that it's not the result of obedience. You cannot really pretend in your heart of hearts that you have a clear conscience before God. You can pretend with everyone else. You can try to, to sell it to everyone else. And you may sell it, but you can't sell it to God. And I just want to encourage you tonight, if your conscience is not clear do whatever it takes to get it clear. Be willing to humble yourself. Be willing to put down your pride. Be willing to admit things haven't been right. And make things right. So that no matter what situation you're in, no matter where you find yourself in life, you can say that before God, my conscience is clear. I have been what I'm supposed to be. I have done what I'm supposed to do. I'm where I'm at because this is where I'm supposed to be. Do what it takes. Do what it takes to enjoy a clear conscience before God. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you would help each of us in here tonight, no matter where we're at. Lord, for the one who is able to enjoy that clear conscience right now, I pray that it would be something that they would strive to maintain, to work on, and, and to keep in place simply because the importance of it, the value of it, not knowing when we will stand before you. And Lord, if there's anyone in here tonight, whether it be young or old, 
if they know that the conscience is not clear because of disobedience, I pray that tonight they would stop trying to convince themselves that everything's okay, that they would stop quenching the Spirit, and that they would make things right. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.